Welcome to What's Your Beef? What's Your Beef is proudly supported by Suncorp Bank, helping local producers through the ups and downs since 1902. Each week we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello, I'm Jane Cudahy and this is What's Your Beef? You'd be hard-pressed to find someone more passionate about rural health services than Professor Sabina Knight. After a lifetime living and working in remote areas of Australia, she's developed an intimate knowledge of the best way to service some of our most problematic areas. Now, working as part of James Cook University's Department of Rural Health, Sabina's dedicated to growing a rural health network from her base in Mount Isa, Western Queensland. Sabina, I'd really like to start with how you ended up in your chosen vocation. What was your youth like? Where did you grow up? And how did you decide that you wanted to work in this area? Well, I grew up on a station in northwest New South Wales. That's what I saw as my future, um, being on on the station. Uh, I loved rural life. My father had um, uh, other views in that he was a very practical and pragmatic man and said, yeah, you can come home, but not before you've got something behind you because things can go bad. <laughs> you, wise you words, need, wise words. Yeah, wise yeah. And he and, and was progressive in one ways and, and, and not so much in the other because he saw it was the wife's role to be able to bring in the alternate income if that was the case. And certainly we were surrounded by many examples that, and most of them were nurses, but a couple were teachers. So that that was really my options. Teach, you know, be a teacher or a nurse, what do you want to do? And we, we had some nurses in the family and I was very interested in nursing. So I went off to do my nursing training. And did so and then returned back to northwest New South Wales. Why did you want to go back rural? I have a very strong identity with the bush. That's who I am. Uh, it's where I want to be. I, I didn't ever, I mean, I loved living in Sydney when I was doing my training, but I didn't ever see myself as living there beyond, you know, for a practical or pragmatic reason. And it's a great place to visit and, you know, have your cultural um, activities, uh, you know, go to a concert, go to the opera, see a game, whatever it is, go to the Easter show. But uh, my my life was bush, you know, I, I we, we bred stock horses, Australian stock horses, as well as cattle and, uh, and grew cotton. And so, you know, the recreation around that with, through the Australian Stock Horse Society, through the shows, the rodeos, the camp drafts, polo cross, there was plenty on. And I, I did that for some years and um, I got quite involved in rodeo. Which is good because now you live in Mount Isa, so you really, yeah, you know, right. you've crossed a few divides there. <laughs> I thought, I, when I got here, I thought, well, I've got a few practical skills I can contribute. I know how to organise a rodeo. I know how to run go. Do a few things. I haven't done it for a while, though, <laughs> but at least I understand it. But yeah. one of the lovely things about getting to Mount Isa really is that um, the rodeo brings family to me so the next generations of my nephews and nieces come to compete and um and their partners and children and their mates and I look across my back veranda and see who's there and I don't always know their name but I often know who their parents might be well then you know it's know, a, you know it's a good party really don't you when there's people <laughs> yeah, you don't right. know on your veranda <laughs> yeah exactly I moved to central Australia as um didn't take long to realise that nursing was my passion, in fact, and um, and remote area nursing was my passion. And I went to work in the Pittenborough lands um, in Central Australia initially, uh, and I spent nearly 30 years in Central Australia um, in a range of roles, but as 
always um, underpinned by my remote area nursing. I got involved in the formation of the Council of Remote Area Nurses of Australia back in 1983-1984, the foundation of the National Rural Health Alliance back in 1991, and, and really because we wanted the best for people who lived in the bush. You know, there was no reason why we couldn't provide high-quality healthcare if we had access to the right skills and the right information and the right equipment, we could do a lot better. And just while you're there, the, the challenges, I guess, when you're talking about remote area nursing, Central Australia is is completely different, really, to a lot of um, what the rest of us know as bush, too. Like, there seems to be a couple, a few tiers there. So what are the challenges for you? Each region has its own characteristics, but what they have in common in remote Australia is vast distances, highly dispersed populations, highly diverse populations, and different industries and, and different economic bases. History matters. Uh, so the, some of the areas that I was working on were traditional lands. of and I started off with the Pitinjara, Yankunjara and Natajara people. Um, I later worked at, um, at Utopia with uh, Yurupunja Health Service with uh, Amajara and Aliara people, and then out west um, uh, with Western Islander people, and then went on to work in many different places and associated with whatever, but working with First Nations people on their place um, is a different experience to working with people who, who don't have control over their own lands anymore and their and their destiny. But also, one of the upsides of um, of people uh, managing their own country is that sense of trying to create a way forward. But the downside is that. There has not been not much economic investment in those regions right across Australia, and so they haven't had the opportunity to develop a financial base on which to realise their aspirations. And many of these places are in the desert, so um, it's pretty different to... So where I am here in, in northwest Queensland, where you add water, if you get rain, this country really comes to life, and it can carry a lot of cattle. But at the same time, when it stops raining, you need to offload pretty quickly. And that year I arrived in the summer of, of January 2011, it was a huge wet season. It rained and rained and rained and rained. It was great. I thought, this is different. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, From Central that's Australia, a, that's, a, that's a shock. That's right. I, I didn't have lawn literacy. We didn't have lawns. And, um, no, <laughs> you have lovely rock gardens. <laughs> Uh, we had sandy desert gardens. We had beautiful natives, you know, native flowers and plants and stuff. It was lovely, but we didn't grow lawn. But, you know, we had this wonderful green year. And, of course, the following summer we had big bushfires because there was so much grass around. And then really for the next eight years we had really inconsistent rain. And as you know, we went into a really quite a serious drought period. So how does that affect the health system? Because that's, I guess, you, you know, you, you're – witnessing that but your every day is the health system so how are those two related it certainly does because you know people's well-being is intricately linked to the way they feel about themselves their economic opportunities the stresses in their life um, and their ability to um, care for themselves and their families do and and live their everyday lives that they might reasonably you know predict so can they send their kids to school can they can they, you know, socialise? Can they go to town? Those sorts of things are all really impacted when you when you come to drought and and when you're managing, you know, feeding stock all of the time, or you know, looking at at, at stock that are really poor, that we know that impacts on the well-being, the mental well-being 
and the physical well-being of people in the bush. And then it also impacts on the employment opportunities. So people who might work seasonally don't have access to jobs. And so that might be their only access. So they, they might not necessarily be too literate or highly skilled. They might be really school, skilled bushmen and women, but they, they you know, don't necessarily get a job in um, commensurate in other industries because literacy might not be so good. For as an example, and so they lose opportunities to get work. The businesses in town suffer because people don't have the cash flow. The service industry suffers because the air conditioners aren't getting serviced and the the you know the white goods aren't getting replaced. All those they all have a flow huge on big flow on effect. Everybody shares in the pain, and of course, as you know, that we we also had the um it converged with the live export ban, which con you know, just confounded and compounded, sorry, the um, the experience and a downturn in the mining market. So what were you seeing then? That's that's a lot of like, if you just take away the politics and everything of the live export ban, what were people presenting to, to you oh, and absolutely. the services? So with? No, no politics in this. This is, this is just the mm. impact of things that yeah. happened and converged. So, you know, businesses closed. Some businesses ran on a really, you know, thin... Um, Shoestring. There were, I was, you know, people were more unemployed. Um, families that would normally have someone working in them didn't have anybody working in them. Mm. It exacerbates all current health conditions. It might mean that people ignore some uh, health conditions whilst they're busy working, or they feel like they can't. They have to make decisions: Are they going to fill this prescription, or are they going to buy that feed? Or if um, people might not necessarily know what they're entitled to, um, or they also, in in people braving this out, whether or not it's someone who's unemployed now, you know, seasonally for the first time in some years, they might not seek out healthcare and get their health check. They just might not be thinking of it, and and they they might not be living particularly healthy lives because they've got nothing to do. They might be drinking more. Their, their nutrition might not be so good. Their physical activity is not what it used to be. It really does compound. And so you see you see in the health stats that you, you have a rise in, uh, a continued rise in chronic disease and a continued rise in uh, mental health-related conditions right across Central West and Northwest. Um, and, and you can link it to the not only, but in, in some proportion to to these events. So you're working with James Cook University at the moment um, in terms of putting together a, a rural health workforce. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, so this centre here that's headquartered out of Mount Isa is uh, 22 years old and we're a federally funded uh, university centre, a university department of rural health that, but it's funded as a workforce strategy. By establishing this centre out here, we create an environment which would mean that health professionals would want to live and work in a region such as this, so that for those who are, you know, at the top of their career or want to get to the top of their career, they need to be involved in teaching and research. Well, that, that couldn't happen if there was no teaching or research to get involved in. And so we've overcome that by establishing an academic presence where we are. How has the take-up been for that? It's been really good. It's, it changes the environment, but it's not the only thing. The other thing that was, we're involved in is facilitating student placement. So making sure that having the infrastructure and the coordination that students can come here and places like this or all the towns surround and the communities and undertake their student placement so they can see 
that there's a future here for them in places like this. So we're flagging with them. And then the third thing is um, raising aspiration raising around people who live in places like this, who've grown up in places like this in the surrounds, that they too could take on a health career or in fact, any other professional career and go to university. Because if the North is going to develop, the North has to really be led by people from within it. They know how to live and work here. They need, just need to have the skills behind them to, for those entrepreneurs to, to flourish. So I am passionately interested in medical and health careers. But quite frankly, we need IT people. We need managers. So we need you know, lawyers. We need teachers. We need, every, we need all of those to be able to go forward. And we don't want to be try, always trying to convince people from Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane to relocate. We want to give everyone up here the opportunity to take up whatever career that they might like and to realise that that's an option for them. And so that's the, the, the third plank to our stool. And so we are, sorry, the leg to our stool, not a plank. It's <laughs> okay. Keep, I got what you were saying. Stool, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so we deliver a nesting program locally. And so we, we, we've produced since 2004 uh, 83 nurses in and for the region, a great majority of which are still here working in the region. And if they're not here, they're in places like this where we need them. Only five out of that 83 are working in cities. And so, and and the profile of, of those nurses are a bit different to those who who grow up and go away to university or um, you know, move to or are in those cities because they've got caring responsibilities. They they often mature age students. They may have children of their own. For whatever reason, they don't. They they're not mobile. They can't leave town or towns like this, and they just haven't had the opportunity to undertake a, a professional career. Provide them with the opportunity, and they take it up. And and I think that's terribly important. So we've been part of that drive to test out and having the discretionary funds to test out non-traditional approaches and to. Uh, to be a modern university out west, we can we have permission, you know, to innovate to all sorts of, of different things, but which can create um, services and opportunities for students to have really high quality clinical placements, but also do a significant part of their clinical training um, in small, rural, and remote areas. Really making it accessible. So when you have people coming from or students coming from more urbanised areas, what's the biggest shock to the system and then how do you win them over? So if you've never been to a mining town, that can be confronting to have a big stack in the middle of town. Um, if you've, and that's Mount Isa, but you know, if they've never been to a very small town, then, you know, Cloncurry, which is a sizable town and it's got, you know, most things anybody could desire, um, might be a, a real shock. I've had I haven't had it here, but previously when I've had, I remember having a student, an international student, and then another one um, from Sydney work with me when I was working as a nurse, come to do a placement with me in Central Australia. They couldn't get over the quiet. They couldn't sleep because it was too quiet. I've never it's had that It's a bit problem. like we can't sleep when it's too noisy. <laughs> yeah. they, they had never experienced the quiet. And so it is just learning to adjust to what is. If you're into Asian cooking, where do you, you know, is it possible? And is it twofold? Like, do the do do when these sort of situations happen, and I imagine that happened quite a bit. Do the, the community really come on board with helping yeah, people adjust do. and and you know? Absolutely. You go to the supermarkets in Winton, and if you want something, you just tell them, and they'll get it in for you. Mm. 
And of course, these days with technology, if you absolutely can't get it there, then you just order it online. It turns up. It's bush <laughs> exactly. order. You know? Look, to be honest, I think of all the years I did my shopping by bush order, and now it's so much easier. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. That's right. And I'm not going to lie. I have my I have my Chinese grocer in Sydney uh, that I do online um, ordering for. That's absolutely not something I thought I would be doing. 15 years ago, I can tell you that. Now, yeah. I guess um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, we are talking today for Beef Australia, but what important health issues related to the beef to beef have you worked on? One of the big issues that we worked on, when I first arrived um, and I was did a, a, um, a trip around uh, the region and spoke to the all the senior clinical staff at the small hospitals and, and clinics and asked them what were their concerns, and they all said to me they were worried about quad bike accidents. I thought that's interesting. Why? You know yeah. what is it? And they were worried about the severity and frequency of quad bike accidents. And they were noticing a, a really rapid increase. And what era was this? Sorry, Sabina. So just this to... is two thousand eleven. Yeah, okay. When Good. I arrived. Yep. And um and so I thought, well let's go and have a look at the data and try and understand this. And um and unfortunately the way that um the hospital records were kept at the time when they weren't all linked and so I couldn't you know get a report easily but I I asked them to tell me roughly how many they'd had so I could put it together I talked to RFDS got a picture in my own mind and then I went off to talk with Richard Franklin at JCU in the um, Anton Bionel Public Health um, Centre and we put together a project to look at uh, quad bike accidents and we got that underway we interviewed people we did focus groups with people with our users riders station people people in town with um, retailers or getting all of their views around what what did they think the issues were what did they think the drivers were of choosing a quad bike as a particular as the vehicle of choice for a particular job trying to understand that um, and then we and then I brought together all of all of the experts nationally and internationally and we had joined up with Farm Safe Australia and had a national conference here in Mount Isa in 2012 and we produced the Mount Isa Statement on Quad Bike Safety. So from an assessment of all of the literature and the evidence that was understood, from the uh, consideration of those who were lead experts in their field, from consensus we produced this statement and then worked with other researchers and other stakeholders who were doing a lot of work in this area such as the Ag Health Unit at Moree and followed the work that was happening. We we went to the minister, I, I led a, um, a group that went to the relevant minister at the time uh, who uh, whose portfolio oversaw uh, work health and safety federally and they immediately responded by requiring anybody who was employed through a, a, a federal related department that need to if they were using quad bikes that they had to have helmets and crush protection devices um, and it was a it was a slow accumulation but gathering up the evidence and continuing on with the advocacy which has we've which has now resulted in by the end of this year retailers have to uh, when they are selling um, ATV all-terrain vehicles or quad bikes as we know them at the point of sale, they have to meet certain safety standards. Mm. 
um, which was called for back in 2012. And you say it's a slow burn, but really that escalated when from something that you thought was gathering information at the time, yeah. and then you've actually. So what was that? What was that like? Can you go back to these communities now and and be happy with that result? Like, have people really absolutely delighted? And I've got to say the the you know the beef industry was so generous. So you know we went to Beef Week, and the first time we went to Beef Week, we just tacked on the table at the you know the end of the uh, Queensland Safety Commission and chatted to people that came past and we had a bit of a questionnaire to and then we walked around and observed people you know because there was lots of um, retailers there and then went back the, uh, the, the next um, uh, beef week and um, and the last beef week we sat up in the paddock with our own stand <laughs> and, and really and not not only interested in quad bikes but um, in that we really moved that project along but in talking to people about careers and health careers and research and, and those sorts of things and so to be able to identify a problem and know you've identified it because you are living and working in the region and then bring in the experts which is our job and we couldn't get a grant, so that didn't stop us. We still did the research, and then and and then partner up with you know the people involved in the business. You, there's no point in doing research on people. You've got to do it with people. And so I go to a camp draft, you know, with Julia Creek or, you know, up to Saxby or whatever. And people would introduce me around. We'd sit on the tailboard and we chat. And I said, can you explain to me, you know, on on, on under what circumstances would you? choose to use spikes so I can understand it. And they would tell me. It was really helpful. And just by having the discussion, I think we raised the issue and raised the awareness. I was really aware that quad bike accidents were, were seen as that, the really unfortunate and terrible accidents, rather than, as we were coming to understand, absolutely predictable mm. events that, you know, you were lucky if it didn't happen as opposed to being unlucky if it didn't and so really having those broader conversations around well and, and, and I, I didn't understand just how unstable they were um, and quite frankly when I left northwest New South Wales in 1984 I could quite possibly you know run faster than that bike mm. You know, it was a little one, two, five. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, the, the first one that we ever had, I reckon, I, could, I even I could run faster than that one. I'm yeah, sure. That's right. And, mm. and I and I that in my mind, that's what they look like. And I could not work out for love of money why why it was a problem. And I just hadn't kept up with the development in the uh, in in that um, motorbike industry Absolutely. and and how you know the those big bikes are 900 cc's and they can go from a standing start to you know. 80 kilometres an hour in, in seconds. So just extraordinary. Yeah, um, goodness, you're all up on the lingo and the tech. What, what's next, Sabina? So when you, you've got the, <laughs> you've got the, the quad bikes sort of, sort of sorted, uh, sort of semi-sorted or sorted, and so when you're going around and asking people now in your area what's the next big issue, what are you hearing? We often work on really small projects that mm. uh, we don't get much funding for but makes a difference. So, you know, we'll, we'll work on understanding more you know, prior to the big flood events um, here, you know, understanding what works in in trying to build resistance for drought and do a literature review and provide that back to the people who are, you know, doing the thinking around that. Bringing in networking previous work that had been done. I was involved in the social impact on drought back in 2008, 2009 mm. in, that, in that national piece of work. So I was able to link 
people who worked in that to other areas. And I think the advantage of being a university department of rural health right out west is we're part of a network of what was 11, but is now 16 around Australia. And so we can, if we don't know it, we can ring up colleagues and say, do you have anyone doing work in this area? Does anyone know anything about this? And we can link people together. And so whether it's um, we're interested in, um, and we were particularly, I mean, we were interested in Q fever uh, previously. A lot of work's been done in that area. And so we followed it really closely. And we had students do some, some work in that, that area for Central West. We don't have to do it anymore. That's a good thing. Um, but if, if, the, if issues arise, then we're here for people to come and talk to um, and ask us for assistance in how they might define their problem and who they should go to you know, for advice or support. How big is the university out in Mount Isa, the school that you're working in? So our university centre here is very modest, but we've doubled in size and capacity since I got here. We're on the oh. hospital campus. Mm. I've got um, 10 uh, either lecture room, meeting rooms, tutorial rooms, all of them technologically enabled. So with video conference, or no, well now we've got Zoom rooms, we've got... <laughs> <laughs> um, two uh, dedicated Zoom rooms. In Longreach, we've got um, a facility there on the hospital campus. And similarly, it's not as big, but we've got a, a big meeting room um, and a smaller one so that tra clinical training can happen. Before we got that, there could be no clinical training happening in Central West. Everyone had to go away. Now we can bring courses right in there and adds to the economic base of the community by bringing people in Absolutely. to do things and bringing other clinicians from other areas to come and be in places like Longreach or Mount Isa or Cloncurry for training or up in Weeper. So which hat are you going to be wearing at Beef 21? What are, you, are you going down with ATVs this time or JCU? Yeah, I'm going down with the JCU hat on um, with uh, Centre for Rural and Remote Health. We've got a uh, Calcutta name. We were given that last year, the Murapuni Centre for Rural and Remote Health. But we'll be going to Beef Week to talk to people about university careers. I've convinced JCU to turn up properly, you know, to um, and they're very willing to to um, to be part of the largest rural gathering in Australia outside of the capital cities um, to talk to people about their research areas, to uh, to look for opportunities for collaboration, to inform people about what they're doing and what we're doing, to be there for people to, you know, make those face-to-face -face inquiries either for themselves or their kids or their family members around what education is available, what courses are available, where and how do they access them. And, of course, the way we're funded and what I'm supposed to do out west is particularly talk to people about, you know, health and medical careers. And, and so I'm delighted to do that. We'll offer some health checks. So, you know, if people want to get their blood pressure taken or whatever well, while they're good. there, they're welcome. Um, but also we're going to invite people to come and form interesting panels to speak so that we are making a contribution because we're citizens too, not just um, on the take. Yeah. <laughs> and we need to make a, a contribution. And so we're putting together some interesting panels to have, you know, leadership uh, conversations around the future of the industry and those in it and so the industry is only as good as the people who are in it and um, and we want to make sure that all around the beef industry are people who are highly skilled and uh, have got the knowledge and skills that they need and for those who work in it 
um, have the opportunity to gain those knowledge and skills that they need to keep doing what they do. So you and I both know that, you know, there are many people have got, you know, several strings to their bow. They might be a beef producer and a paediatrician or a beef producer and a vet or a beef producer and a pharmacist or a beef producer and a nurse. There, there are many of those and that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, we've got people who are accountants and, and producers or we've got people who are truck drivers. And yeah, got, absolutely. You know, other... It's a very broad range, yes. Yeah, it's huge range and you can't assume people's education based by their job and, um, and people do a range of things depending on what's needed. But I think what we've got in the north is incredibly progressive people and very open. You know, they are very open to research and development. They want to be the best they can be. So mm. they've got an opportunity to collaborate with people who are doing research or, you know, who are interested in working with them on their pastures. How could they improve their pastures or their, their genetics to, in their particular area, to be able to deliver what they wanted to deliver? They're, they're, they want to be involved. If they, you know, want to mount an argument as I, as, um, uh, people in south of us around Bulia wanted to make an, a mountain argument around the improvement of roads. Mm. Um, you know, the really bad roads that they have to truck their cattle out over, it results in loss of weight. That's money. Mm. And, you know, the good people of Bulia and surrounds, but no, 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 we need to improve this. And so they, they, they put together the case themselves because they really thought it through. And that's right. You can't argue with reason and, and statistics and, and good research. Yeah, just, and just that thinking, you know, if you've got a, a foster curiosity, so people can say, well, what, what, what sort of an argument do we need to put so it's a compelling argument? Um, it's not just something nice. It's not because someone else has got a tar road, we need one. There's a compelling economic argument here and, um, and, and let's make it. Yeah, absolutely. The town of Bullier is just fantastic. You've got to know it's the, it's <laughs> the best little outback town in Australia. It contributes more than any other town to the development of the medical and health workforce in Australia per population. Really? It's a very tiny town and it has students all year round. Really? They are so welcoming and they extend the hand of friendship and they make sure they know, you know, when it's Palmy night at the pub or if there's an event going on. Has anyone told the students? Make sure, hey, someone ring up the students, make sure they they come down. <laughs> That's um, awesome. And they purposefully speak to them in the street and, and, and include them in things, which is so lovely. And they've done it all themselves. No one's asked them to do it. Um, and they say that they value the diversity of the student body because they're interested in people, you know, as well from different places. Mm. And it creates talking points. And um, so the students, students contribute, but I've got to say the town contributes more. And we are so appreciative of, of them and all of the people across our patch because they make, they really make it possible for us to do the clinical training. You know, JCU as an institution has as its you know, major focus um, delivering for the people in rural and remote Australia and similar regions of the tropical world and we're committed to that. And we've got a track record of producing a health workforce who has intentions and follows through those intentions of working in rural and remote Australia. So our job is not yet done, but we're well along the way and we're very proud of that. But of course, you can't take the foot off that pedal. We've got to continue to work hard to do this. And of course, 
everything, you know, you can't make assumptions that you've got it right now and will continue. Last year told us that. Who would have thought? Mm, I know. <laughs> that um, COVID would be the, 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 the thing that challenged us. I always thought that we were absolutely going to be at the forefront of whatever next big um, health challenge we had in Australia because of our position in the north and, and tropical facing that SARS or MERS or mm. other things that come in may well, you know, um, come across with animals um, uh, and people who are for their work, you know, moving from Asia Pacific regions into Australia and back again. Um, and whilst that is true with COVID, it came through a cruise ship. Yeah, <laughs> but, absolutely. Um, it was but completely it could have, have come elsewhere. So we have to be ready and we have to be mindful of it. And I think because of that, we that involvement between animal and human health is really quite important. And so we're very closely engaged with the vets as well. Okay, well, that's good. That's good. Well, I'd, I'd imagine that's very much part of what you do and need to be aware of. Now, look, Sabina, we have gone um, well and truly into into the expected time. So I just want to ask you quickly uh, the last question, and I guess that's something that we've asked everyone that's come on this podcast. But coming from or living in Mount Isa, I'd imagine you'd have beef by the, by the kilo out there. So I want to know what your favourite cut of beef is. I've got two. Great. Um, so I do love a good fillet. Um, because well, you're it, only it's human. So delicious and easy to... Um, to chew, you know, it just yep. melts in your mouth and yep. you get a bit spoilt, don't you? You get lazy when you eat fillet. <laughs> yeah, um, you do. <laughs> but for flavour, you know, you really can't beat a good rump. Oh, gosh, yes. I love how many times people have said this, though. I feel like we need to start a little um, a little <laughs> club, the rump club. Like, it's it's fantastic the amount of people that have rallied around the rump during yeah, this but season. I've but I've got to say, I am a foodie and it's a good place to be a foodie. So there's a, there's a cut of cut of beef for every occasion. Yeah. And it's really about, you know, making sure you prepare that that particular cut of meat in the right way and enhance it with the right flavours. And I'm, I've been very fortunate to live and work with people who have lived and worked all over the world and from all over the world. And so I've got a pretty eclectic um, set of uh, recipe books. Yeah, and repertoire. And, of course, you know, we, we don't want for having access to spices these days. Mm. And and so it is about making sure you don't, you know, ruin the meat. You yeah, know? exactly. No, um, overcooking can, usually or under-seasoning are usually the two top ones. Less is always more. So mm. the subtlety of flavour and any... I mean, the Asian cook or Indian cook will tell you that you don't overdo the spices. You have to just get them right so that you get that harmony of flavours all the way through. You know, people out here are are very critical of um, the quality of their beef. They are um, their fish and their beef. They know very well. They're completely indiscriminate, I've got to say, about the salad. That's interesting Uh, considering Mount Isa is, is a long way from the coast. Yeah, but we're not as the crow flies. And so mm. because they get up and down for um, for fishing and Corumba's just up the road, mm. um, they know what high-quality fish tastes like. Yeah, and absolutely. you can't bluff them. So, um, <laughs> no wool over there, right? You can go anywhere in Mount Isa and the steak will always be superb, like high-quality superb. Right, well, you've average. thrown down that challenge, haven't you, uh, yeah, Sabina? Absolutely. To, and, to, to eat a good steak in Mount Isa should be very, yeah, very easy. Yeah. 
I've got to say, it's been a really pleasant change and surprise from where I used to live. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about that at all. Well, look, yeah. thank you so much for your time today, um, Professor Sabina Knight um, from JCU in Mount Isa. And I hope that uh, we get to catch up at Beef. I look forward to Please come and see us. Beef Australia is proudly supported by our principal partners. Thanks to the Australian Government Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment, the Queensland Government, Meat and Livestock Australia and the Rockhampton Regional Council. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.